Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadikin. Hey, Des. Hey. We had a lot of good content that we just did not record before the show. Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry you guys missed it. It was all very exciting. Um, Follow us on Twitter for yeah. live <laughs> live tweeting of our, our content conversations. Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's start out the show by thanking our lovely patrons for this week. If you would like to support the show monetarily, we have a Patreon page where you can have access to lots of different bonus contents there. We have hours and hours of bonus shows that you will have access to if you donate. And that is at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Lauren, Amy, Sarah, Kara, Paige, Cassie, Brian, Colleen, Sophie, Rebecca, Debbie, Jill, Alana, Lauren, Teresa, Dita, Mia, St. Knives. Oh, like St. Ives. Ooh. But St. Knives. Nice. I like that. <laughs> Christina, Carrie, Elisa, and Christina. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This is a case that I've kind of wanted to do for a while, but I was always kind of worried that there wasn't enough for like a full episode. Right. Like I was worried it would be a short episode and I, we always try to get it to be like at least close to an hour. Right. That's our goal. Uh, luckily something happened where I was able to combine two cases and that is the case of John Landis. He's the one I have always wanted to cover because I was fascinated by his crime and the movie that it happened right. on. Uh, and then his son, Max, was outed as a huge piece of shit. So then I had myself a little <laughs> nice little twofer to focus on and fill up an hour for sure. Right. So um, obviously the piece of shit apple did not fall far from the piece of shit tree. If you don't think John Landis is a piece of shit, you probably will change your mind <laughs> after you hear the full story. Um, they both have kind of out of control egos, and that's combined with criminal behavior, which is like a really bad combination. Um, so yeah, uh, I will do John's story first and then I will go into his piece of shit legacy, his idiot narcissist son, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just love how you said that in your journalist voice. (laughs) That's my reporter, uh, speak. So let's just start with John. John was actually born in Chicago, Illinois, but when he was a baby, his parents relocated to Los Angeles. When he was a young boy, he saw a movie called The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which is what inspired him to become a director. This is a quote from John. I had complete suspension of disbelief. Really, I was eight years old and it transported me. I was on that beach running from the dragon, fighting the Cyclops. It just dazzled me and I bought it completely. And so I actually sat through it twice. And when I got home, I asked my mom, who does that? Who makes the movie? I kind of like, I mean, I'm not saying anything good about him, but I kind of like that feeling where you you figure out what you want to do as a kid. Yeah. It's kind of like, how does that happen? Like, who makes these movies? Like, you can kind of picture that feeling. I think probably all of us had when we first saw movies, like in a theater. So you can kind of see how that can happen. So he got his start working in Hollywood as a mailboy, which actually was the title of a porn movie I found in my uncle's bedroom. (laughs) Mailboy, I'm always like mailboy because I remember looking at it and not knowing, and I was wait, like, oh, wait a second, wait, is it mail M A L E? Yes, it was spelled M L M A L E, mailboy. I was like, why do you need to call it a mailboy? Like it, it seemed like a quite a redundant pun in my opinion, right. as a, even as a kid. So whenever I see mailboy, I get really excited thinking of that little cute memory. Um, so he worked his way up. Uh, he eventually got to be an assistant director on a movie called Kelly's Heroes. Uh, it was on this film that he met and befriended Don Rickles and Don Su- Donald Sutherland, both of whom he ended up working with in the future. I actually saw this movie about a year ago, randomly, because I was trying to get more into movies that men liked. <laughs> And, I, and one of my men, my men friends, my male male friends, male boys, uh, recommended it to me. Wait, I, what movie it, is it? It's called uh, Kelly's Heroes. It's like a war comedy kind of movie. 
I don't tend to watch westerns or war movies, so I was kind of like, tell me what kind of movies I will like. You know what I mean? That are those genres. Yeah. Those are the two genres I never watch is war movies and western movies. Yeah. There are a few I do like in those genres, but in general, I can probably say safely that I won't like the There's movies. There's one war movie I like and that's <clears throat> and that's Full Metal Jacket. But all of the rest of them bore me to And there's tears. a Western I like is like uh, 310 to Yuma. Have you seen that one? No, okay. but I'm sure it's good. It was like nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Right. That one I did like. Uh, so I tend to like the ones that maybe aren't the cl- typical of that genre. They're like a little bit different. I like Blazing way. Saddles. <laughs> that's, that's a great Western. Um, so anyways, I didn't like that Kelly's Heroes, by the way. So fuck you, my friend. <laughs> Oh, and you don't need to at reply me suggestions of war movies that you think I'll like because I don't like any of them. Okay. You heard her, guys. Don't at her. Because one time I tweeted that, that I said the only war movie I liked was Full Metal Jacket, and then I had a bunch of at replies from guys that were like, well, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And it's like, I don't care. Guys love making suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) They do. So... He continued working as an AD, um, and he even did some stunt work during this period. He made his directorial debut at the age of 21, and it was on a movie called Schlock. This movie, I didn't know about this movie. It was described as a tribute to monster movies. So I think it had a comedy element to it, and it featured gorilla costumes by Rick Baker, who is a very famous FX makeup person. And this is the first time they worked together, and they also... Uh, had several more collaborations after this um, initial one. Now, the film sort of got a huge boost because Johnny Carson loved it and invited Landis onto The Tonight Show. The film has actually become kind of a cult classic. Like, So, I don't know, maybe it's worth checking out. I honestly don't really know that much about it. But if you like that type of thing, then maybe you'll like it. Um, David Zucker sees him on The Tonight Show. Now, David Zucker is part of the team Abrahams and Zucker. They wrote Airplane and the Naked Gun movies. Love so they do this kind of like comedy spoof, spoofing genres of yeah. movies. They hire Landis to direct a film called The Kentucky Fried Movie. Do you know about this movie? I do. Okay. This is um, widely considered a comedy classic kind of cult vibe to it. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, it's basically a series of sketches that are spoofing the film industry. So they'll have coming attraction trailers for black exploitation, kung fu movies, disaster movies, as well as like theater gimmicks being spoofed, uh, commercials, educational films, etc. There's tons of like star cameos throughout yeah. the movie. That was like a pretty successful movie. Now, that film leads to Landis being hired to direct Animal House. Landis said when he initially read the script, for Animal House, it was a really, it was really literally one of the funniest things I had ever read. It had a nasty edge like National Lampoon. I told him it was wonderful, extremely smart and funny, but everyone's a pig for one thing. Now, this movie definitely sort of started this genre of like gross out films or yeah. gross out comedies. Like I, I, I mean, I've seen Animal House, and I honestly don't remember what I thought of it. <laughs> It definitely seems like a guy movie to me. Like it's we're fine. talking about, like it has that element of humor. I think that guys really like. I like gross, gross out stuff. But yeah. Animal House is one of those movies, and I'm like, eh, it's it's fine. Yeah. So it didn't receive great reviews. It had like mixed reviews, but it was a huge fucking success. So right. that's all that really. I matters, mean, it's an right? iconic movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably recognize images or memes or like things from it. It's just one of those classic movies. Obviously it made John Belushi a huge fucking star. So there's that aspect. Everyone every guy, every straight guy had that poster of John Belushi chugging the whiskey with the college shirt on. Right. In there. And any college movie frat house type movie that has come out since is definitely paying some homage to this movie for sure. So it is iconic in that way. Now after this movie in nineteen eighty, he co writes and directs um, the Blues Brothers, which is um, based on an SNL sketch and stars John Belushi once again and Dan Aykroyd. Now, this movie is also a huge fucking hit. It features tons of music numbers by R&B legends like James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles. Like, uh, This is another movie I've seen, but I honestly have no memory. Like, I'm sure when I see it, I would be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. right. But it's like, it's also very iconic. And then they made one, what, in 2000 they or something? Did. Yeah. Blues Brothers 2000. Yeah, okay, there we go. Uh, so at the time, this is one of the most expensive movies ever made. At really? At $30 million. Why? I think it was just the music maybe. Also, and the just cameos like, and stuff? Yeah, I don't know. Um, at the time, 
uh, John had like a little friendly rivalry with another big director of that era, Steven Spielberg. And he had recently had a movie called 1941 that cost $35 million. So they were kind of like trying to outspend, like have, they right. both had these expensive movies and they had this little rivalry going. Now, um, he next writes in 1981, he writes and directs another cult classic movie. The um, movie is a comedy horror classic called An American Werewolf in London. Now, this movie I definitely have seen a million times and know this one very well. Did you see this movie? I've seen In Paris. I've actually never seen In oh, London. Oh, really? I know. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's weird. I'm always shocked when I've seen a horror movie that I you know. haven't seen. I know. This is like considered his most personal project. Like He wanted to do this movie since he was working on Kelly's Heroes back in the day. Like I think he was shooting that movie in... Yugoslavia or some like Eastern European country that you would have been able to shoot in. And I guess that's where he got the idea for the movie of being like these two guys, Americans, you know, on like a backpacking whatever in London or in England. Um, So this was a huge commercial success as well. Um, And this also was a film, it seems like Landis has these films that kind of green light a lot other, a lot of other movies of the same type. And he really, this really kind of, gave studios the okay to have comedy elements in horror movies, like big budget. I mean, I know that they always kind of have that. Big budget, yeah. But the studios were kind of like, okay, we can do comedy and horror. Right. So that kind of led to those kind of movies being uh, made in the 80s. Now, um, this is obviously quite a run of successful movies. Right. (laughs) Like for, he's only 31 at this time. That is so wild So to have that many iconic movies in a row, it's pretty like mind-boggling so he's a star director at this point. Uh, his next movie that he will be working on with Steven Spielberg is the Twilight Zone movie. And this is a, an anthology type movie. It's basically um, you have a bookend of like the, the sort of, you know, story, the sort of through line. And then in between you have four individual stories that are kind of standalone. These are really popular in the horror genre. Like a lot of my favorite horror movies are these anthology type movies, like tales from the crypt with, with the one with Joan Collins. Did you see that one? <laughs> yeah. So like, I love those kind of anthology movies, like the creep show yeah. uh, and stuff like that. Did you see the twilight zone movie? No, I never saw it. Oh really? Okay. It's really but I good. I might've seen it when I was a kid. Yeah. It's really good. Uh, I, I, that's one of those movies that was always on cable. So yeah. I've seen it like I a million like I've times. I feel like I've seen it on like TV or something. If there was movies on cable TV, like in the eighties and nineties, I've seen them all like a million times. Yeah. Like there's just certain movies. Doesn't and I Twilight- both watched a lot of TV as yeah. kids? <laughs> I did. I, I've seen the Twilight Zone movie probably like 20 times at least. Like, I don't know, like a ton. So if you don't know the movie, this was a big deal movie because you have, in addition to Landis and Spielberg, um, the other directors directing segments was George Miller, who did the Mad Max movies. And he did the one that's based on um, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is a famous episode with William Shatner from back in the day. Joe Dante did It's a Good Life, and that's the episode where the little kid puts people in the cornfield when they don't obey him. Right. And that's a classic episode. He... He's done a ton of movies um, as well. He did The Howling, Piranha, Gremlins, Joe Dante. So you've got all these guys who are like at the top of their game at this period. So this is a big deal movie. So John Landis, the episode that he did, Stephen King did actually my least favorite. I mean, Steven Spielberg did my least favorite um, storyline. And it was like a kick the can with Scatman Crothers, who I love. But it was kind of the corny Steven Spielberg type Mm -hmm. where the other ones had more of a horror element to them. Yeah. Uh, so John Landis actually did the only original story. It wasn't an original Twilight Zone. All other three stories were based on original Twilight Zone episodes. And his was sort of loosely based on one. Um, and then the opening narration for his segment borrowed from two other episodes of the Twilight Zone. So the opening narration of his episode is, You're about to meet an angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. This is a sour man, a lonely man, who's tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others, but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. The character Bill Connor is played by actor Vic Morrow, who is also Jennifer Jason Lee's father, if you don't know that little snippet of trivia. This is a guy who basically is the type of voter 
I don't know anyone like this, who blames everyone else for his shitty life, especially when they're minorities or The character. Others. The character, right. Not Vic Morrow. I mean, he might be a jerk, too. I have no idea. I know him and his daughter were estranged, so take that. Take from that what you will. <laughs> um, so the episode is really... It's really good. It's almost my favorite one in, in the movie. He basically... The story is he he um, is in a bar drinking. He's very angry. A Jewish coworker has gotten a promotion that he wanted. So he's basically at this bar fucking shitting on Jewish people, black people, um, Asian people. A black guy at the bar eventually is like, get the fuck like, kicks him the fuck <laughs> yeah. out. So he leaves the bar. Okay. When he leaves the bar, suddenly he's not in the world of the bar anymore. He is in Nazi-occupied France, um, and he's being chased by SS officers. So he's being chased by these SS officers. He jumps off a bridge to escape them or a ledge or something. When he jumps off the bridge, now he's a black guy being chased by the KKK. So basically he's like getting getting a like fucking sense of how it is to be all these people he's been fucking ragging on right. at the bar. So um, he's running from the Klan at that point. The next transition is he is a Vietnamese man being shot at by American soldiers during the Vietnam War. So at the episode ends where he goes back, he ends up back in Nazi-occupied France, and he is captured by the SS agents put on a, or officers put on a train to a camp, and he basically sees the bar where he was, and he's screaming for help. And no one fucking cares because he's a piece of shit. <laughs> so, like, do you know what I mean? So he he ends up going on the train to a concentration camp. Right. Okay. So it's a pretty like heavy episode. Yeah. But definitely kind of powerful. This segment also contained an inside joke from John Landis. During the segment where um, Bill is in Vietnam, a, a soldier says to another American soldier, I told you guys we shouldn't have shot Lieutenant Niedermeyer. Now, this is a reference to Animal House. Lieutenant uh, or Nieder, Nieder, Douglas Niedermeyer is like the annoying character in that movie. Yeah. And the sort of end credits of that movie, they tell where everyone is. And his says, killed in Vietnam by his own troops. So it's like a little inside joke that, that he, he was the annoying into. guy. Yeah. Right. So it's a little inside joke by him in that, uh, in that segment. Okay. So now it's the Vietnam section that we're going to talk about because this is where the tragedy took place. In the scene... Vic Morrow is accompanied by two Vietnamese children as they try and escape the American troops who are shooting at them from a helicopter. I mean, the scene is obviously depicting a war zone, so it's pretty explosive and lots of fucking, you know, things are going off, bombs are going off, guns are shooting, whatever. It's a fucking war zone. So without knowing anything about what happened, I think most of us would be like, wow, explosions and helicopters <laughs> seem like a really bad fucking combo. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? Like, I mean, come on. So now some of this stuff will come out at the trial that happens later. So John Landis violated several of California's child labor laws when he hired these two children. One of them was seven-year-old Micah Den Lee, who was Vietnamese, and the other was six-year-old Renee Shin Yi Chen, who was Chinese, and he basically hired them without the required permits that you need to hire child actors. Now, they were being paid under the table to, per, to circumvent obeying these child labor laws, which did not permit children to work at night. And this scene was being shot at 2, 2 a.m. in the morning. Right. Okay. So Landis could have sought out a special waiver, but because he thought that he would not get permission to have such a late shoot with the kids, he didn't even bother to try to get approval to do this. Now, and, and it's especially hard to get approval on something like this where children will be in a scene with explosives going right. off. Like, the whole thing is whatever. He's definitely being shady about this. He's being shady. So the casting agents who got the kids, you know, on the job were unaware that the children would be involved in a scene like this. Were the parents? Yeah, uh, they were, but I feel like they don't know. Right? That's what like, I'm saying. Is they don't the, know what the wool was pulled yeah. over their eyes. So, and then they're on set, I think. So they're seeing all of this, which is horrible. Um, one of the associate producers, a man named George Folsey Jr., told the children's parents not to tell any firefighters on the set that the children were part of the scene, and they hid them from a fire safety officer who was also there as a welfare worker. Wow. So they were really shady about like not even letting people know until it happened. Right. So no one even knew until just, the kids were literally in just the Just to scene. get the shot. Right. Now, a fire safety officer was concerned about the blast that that would cause a crash possibly, 
but did not tell Landis of his concerns. Morrow's uh, friend, who I think was on set, um, wrote later that Morrow's last words to him a few minutes before he went to do the scene, I must be out of my mind to be doing this. I should have asked for a stunt double. What can they do but kill me, right? And that's literally his last words before he goes off to do this scene. The filming location is a ranch called Indian Dunes, and that's something that's been used throughout the 80s on film and television shows where you need like this wide open zone. There's no, you can't see the city lights from LA. It's kind of up by Valencia where Six Flags is, that area. So it's like a great location if you want to do night shots because you can't see the lights from LA. Right. It's it's used for a ton of like Vietnamese settings. Um, is there a lot of foliage there or something? Yeah. Like it's used for China Beach, which was set in Vietnam. Like it's like the go-to place if you wanted a jungle-like atmosphere right. like that was dark. Um, so it's something that's been used. It's a location that's been used a lot. Uh, so in this scene, now we're talking 2 a.m., um, so people are probably tired and like there's that element going on too. Morrow's character is supposed to be carrying the two children out of a deserted village and across a shallow river while being pursued by U.S. soldiers in a hovering helicopter. So the helicopter was actually piloted by a Vietnam War veteran named um, Don C. Wingo. And during the filming of the scene, Wingo is stationed like about 25 feet hovering above ground. And he's near like all these large mortar effects that are surrounding him to go off to create these explosions. Like like thinking of a helicopter just hovering at 25 feet above you yeah. is fucking scary. That is like, really scary. That's low. Okay. So at some point during this shot, he turns the aircraft 180 degrees to the left because he's like preparing for where he needs to be for his next camera shot. At some point one of the explosions detonates and it, it knocks the tail rotor like, and it causes his rotor to fall off from the tail, which sort of makes him sort of unstable and yeah. flying around. Um, so the low flying helicopter at that point is literally spinning out of control. At the same time as this is going on, Moro drops the little girl into the water. So he goes back to get her. And this is just because the scene is very chaotic. Like, so it makes sense that all this happened. Like things are fucking up like in a fast way. And I don't think they even did a dry run or a rehearsal of what they were going to do they just for this. They kind of just did it. So the helicopter's going out of control. He's going back to get the little cor- the little girl. At this point, the helicopter literally falls on top of Moro and the two children. Moro and Lee are decapitated by the helicopter's main rotor blades, and Chen, the little girl, is literally crushed to death under the right landing skid of the helicopter. They pretty much all three die instantaneously. I mean, if you are the type, you can see this all on YouTube. This scene is available to watch. I've seen it before. I mean, I have to say it's like, as far as gore goes, it's not very gory because it is very dark. Yeah. You can't really tell what's happening unless you know the story. Like, right. do you know what I mean? So it's horrifying and tragic and and very fucking <laughs> powerful to watch. But as far as gore goes, there's not like anything gory. So if that's a worry of yours and you want to watch, you don't have to worry about gore, but it is still very disturbing. I don't to even see. know if I'd want to see it. Yeah. So it is available if you if you are the type. Obviously, I was the type who had to see it. So um, after the helicopter loses c- control, um, the fire safety officer, they basically go out to these people, obviously, even though they know they're dead. He covers Morrow's body with a sheet. He places the body, then he pulls it up on the bank. Um, the other people go wading through the water to try to put whatever little fires are out there. They also recover the child's head in the water. Um, the helicopter basically re- remains in place so that they can have an investigation come in and, yeah. and figure out what happens. Um, the death, like I said before, are recorded on film from three different angles. They also recover Moro's head. Like, I mean, it's a fucking mess. Like, it's a horrifying scene for sure. Obviously, Moro dies. The remaining scenes of this segment can't be filmed. And they don't put the um, scenes involving the two children who were killed in the final cut of the movie. But the whole scene, that whole segment is in the movie, basically. I can't believe they even released his segment, like John Landis's segment in the movie. I can't even believe I know. that like, they released that. Yeah. It's it's pretty wild. Like Yeah. Um okay. So obviously this accident is 
pretty fucked up and a huge fucking blow in Hollywood. Like it is a major fucking news story because yeah. this is like something, I mean, I think stunt people have died and that's obviously awful. But this is a major Hollywood star and two children. Yeah. And so the not accident, that's not, not that stunt people dying is no, absolutely tragic. No, but it's like, I just mean in terms of press. More like, do you know what I mean? Right. Like there was just so much negligence. So it's this huge, there's a story. lot of negligence too. So, uh, anyway, Obviously, this leads to criminal action uh, and eventually a civil action case. So this legal thing between the, the criminal trial and the civil trial lasts for almost a decade. Wow. Like That's how long this thing is drawn out. It's, uh, this criminal trial is only nine months, but the, the civil one went on for a very long time. So this civil trial, John Landis is charged with involuntary manslaughter, uh, which is a pretty big crime. Like, yeah. So... Here are some of the highlights from the trial, uh, from the proceedings, uh, and it really inter- illustrates the chaos of the scene, and as well as like Landis's like complete fucking negligence. Right. So the defense is basically for for Landis. The defense is basically like that the it was an accident. Like the displo- the explosions went off at the wrong time. It yeah. wasn't supposed to happen that way. Da da da. Right. It was just a horrible accident. Randall Robinson, who was an assistant cameraman. And he was on board the helicopter, testified that the production manager, Don Allingham, told Wingo, that's too much. Let's get out of here when the explosions were detonated. And but Wingo is the pilot. He's the pilot. Landis was shouting over the radio, get lower, get lower, get lower. So even when the people on the helicopter were like, we need to get out of here. This isn't safe. Landis is like, no, you fucking like stay get, there. Get, it, get lower. It. We're doing this shot. Robinson said that Wingo tried to leave the area, but that was when we lost our control and then we regained it. And then I could feel something let go and we began spinning around in circles. So possibly if they had just left at that point, it never would have happened. Um, Stephen Leidecker, who was a camera operator also on board, testified that Landis had earlier shrugged off warnings about the stunt with the comment, we may lose the helicopter. Like that was his big, like that was it. Well, Leidecker acknowledged that Landis may have been joking when he said the remark. He said, I learned not to take anything the man said as a joke. It was his attitude. He didn't have time for suggestions from anybody. So obviously a lot of this evidence is piling up that this is really more about negligence than just a fucking accident. Right. According to cinema journalist Charles Tashiro, he really thinks that this was a completely foreseeable um, event and that Landis really should have taken, um, he should have looked into the like what was happening and taking these warnings seriously. Um, according to this guy, Tashiro, on location, the one, the crew phot- photographing the scene is directed by someone who has been encouraged to believe he should create the most spectacular image his imagination and budget will allow. Since one law forbidding child labor after hours has already been broken, the precedent for ignoring constraints has been set. Because of this indifference of the critical community, the effort becomes strictly formal and legal rather than moral or political. Since the ideology of singular creation and responsibility structures the thinking about the film workers and the studio executives and is fundamental to the legal system itself, the search for blame is directed toward finding the individuals responsible for the actor, I mean, for the accident. So I think that makes sense. Like when you're already breaking all these rules, it's like, it's just like a snowball effect where you were like, ah, fuck it. We're already like, do you know what I mean? Where you're already doing something bad at some point you're like, well, we have to get through it now. Let's just break all the other rules and get this fucking over with. So you can sense that during that scene, he's like, let's just fucking do it. I have the kids here. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is our last chance to get this fucking scene. I mean, he just sounds like, like the amount of arrogance on this person. Oh, he's he's completely arrogant. I think that's one thing I didn't really know until I was researching this. I kind of felt bad for him. I think back when I first heard about this story, I was like, oh, poor thing. Like he probably didn't want that to happen. But then when you see how much fucking... Well, how he was warned even by the pilot of the helicopter, like, hey, right. this isn't cool. And he just wanted to get this fucking shot. Like, like that's all that mattered to him is not the yeah. safety of the crew or the or the actors on set. It's just like outrageous to me. One of the children's father, Daniel Lee, testified that he heard Landis instructing the helicopter to fly low, lower as well. All four parents testified that they were never told that there would be helicopters or explosives on set, and they were reassured that there would be no danger, only noise. Lee, who survived the Vietnam War and emigrated with his wife to the United States, was horrified while he was watching this scene. This is so like, sad. Like, the explosions are going off, and it really, like, triggered him, obviously, uh, because of he had all these memories of being in that war. Like, yeah. 
Landis, Folsey, Wingo, and the production manager, Dan Allingham, um, and the explosive specialist, Paul Stewart, were tried and all were acquitted of the charges of manslaughter after the nine-month trial that happened in 1986 to 1987. Eventually, there is a civil case, and Morrow's family settles uh, within a year. I think Jennifer Jason Lee got that settlement, being like the child right. of him. Uh, and then the families, uh, the children's families also collected millions of dollars after having several civil lawsuits. Right. So, I mean, I'm sure that's fucking no, no, nope. nothing great. Yeah. Um, one little article I found was, um, well, one of the things that's sort of uh, interesting is Landis does sort of lament a lot about how his career was ruined after this. I'll get into this actually a little bit more. Let me just tell you first that um, a little bit about how the changes happened after this. So this is the first time in the history of Hollywood that a director is charged with a fatality on set. Like this Mm -hmm. is the first time someone was ever sort of held responsible, even though he wasn't convicted. Um, And this was a really bitter and divisive, controversial trial within the Hollywood community. So like if you want to find your silver lining here... Obviously, a lot of things changed after this uh, accident happened. So Mark Locker, who was a spokesman for the Screen Actors Guild at the time, said at the conclusion of the trial, the entire ordeal has shaken the industry from top to bottom, with every actor concerned about their own safety and student management saying, let's not take a risk. So that's good for actors or people whose safety is, you know, should be protected on set. I mean, it's a fucking movie. Yeah. Like, come on. There's just numerous, like, safety standards that kind of went in regarding using um, aircraft and explosions. Mm-hmm. Like that's like a thing now that is sort of like more carefully monitored and protected. As a result like, of yes. this. Um, the Directors Guild of America's Safety Committee began publishing regularly safety bulletins for its members and established a hotline to enable directors to get quick answers to safety questions. The Screen Actors Guild also posted or produced like um, a 24-hour our hotline that actors could call in when they felt like their safety was being jeopardized on set. Like it was like a, an anonymous, like whatever tip line that they could call and get help if they felt like uncomfortable on set with the director's demands. Following the accident during the years of 1982 to 1986, the um, rate of accidents fell by 69.6%. That's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously so these, these changes rules helped. Definitely uh, helped. So um, Landis, like I said before, he really, I mean, of all, like people died and people's lives were ruined. Like I read this article that I found, it was sort of like how, where are they now? Like this big LA Times article from sort of a few years after the trial, where everyone was who was involved in this trial after the fact. Literally, almost everyone's life is ruined. Yeah. Like, I mean, additional to the people, the victims' families and stuff like that, but even like the other people who were on trial with Landis, the helicopter pilot, like, was basically, you know, dirt poor and couldn't get work. A lot of the other people who had lower level jobs who went on trial also were kind of blackballed from Hollywood. Landis acts like his career was pretty much like significantly affected from this incident. In 1996, he said, there was absolutely no good aspect about the whole story. The tragedy, which I think about every day, had enormous impact on my career, from which I possibly may never recover. So he made this all about his career. Yes. As opposed to... Pretty much. Like, I mean... Making, like... Uh, filmmaker Steven Spielberg, I mentioned that they had like a little friendly rivalry. Their friendship pretty much ended after this accident. Like, Steven Spielberg, if you think about uh, him, he is well known for making movies with kids. Yes. And to him especially, he was devastated when he found out that Landis right. had broken these child labor laws and that these kids should never have been in harm's way. Like he, I mean, I believe that about him. I do too. That he, would, he puts these kids' lives in safety and even their emotional like well-being, security and right. well-being. Uh, it's sort of at the forefront, more important than movie. So they never recovered that friendship. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. In this article that was like the where are they now, the one thing that I found out that was like really sick... <laughs> One year after the not guilty verdicts happened, Landis threw an anniversary party with friends to celebrate the not guilty verdict. That is so tacky. It's so fucking tacky, Rachel. That is And gross. he was like widely fucking criticized for this. As he should have and been. And in his opinion, it was like, I'm supporting, like Hollywood all abandoned me. So I'm just supporting the people. Or I'm throwing this party for the people who stuck with me. That like, is so gross. You know what I mean? It's such a like fucking narcissistic gross thing. Um, and then the the idea that his career is ruined is also stupid because after this movie, he directs Thriller, which is like one of the biggest fucking most iconic music videos of all time. He also does Three Amigos. He does Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. I mean, and he does Coming to America. He does like, he still has this huge successful career after this. Ruined my ass. Well, he has these big movies and it's like, yes, maybe he doesn't work that much now, but it's like, is that just the natural decline of a director? Like a lot of directors decline over the years and just start doing TV or whatever. Right. Literally so to say not what everyone is. is Steven Spielberg. Right. So, I mean, now the coming to America, <laughs> I'm going to get into because I have a hilarious interview with Eddie Murphy that I'm going to do after I just finished this. One other interesting thing is that years before the intro the incident happened, Vic Morrow had said to a friend that he knew how he was going to die. He said, I've always had a premonition I was going to die in a helicopter crash. Stop it. Yeah. So that's pretty uh, fucking creepy. So creepy. Now, as I mentioned, uh, John Landis does direct Coming to America after um, this incident happened, like a few years after he did a a few things before that. Um, And I have this hilarious interview about John Landis and Eddie Murphy. Now, this is an an Eddie Murphy interview that he did with Playboy. Um, and they talk about his relationship with John Landis. Okay, so Playboy. You could have directed Coming to America, but didn't. Why, Murphy? I wanted to help out the director, John Landis. I figured I'd give this guy a shot because his career was fucked, but he wound up fucking me. <gasps> what happened? As it turned out, John always resented that I hadn't gone to his Twilight Zone trial. I never knew that. I thought we were cool, but he had been harboring it for a year. 
Every now and then he would make a little remark like, you didn't help me out. You didn't realize how close I was to going to jail. I never paid it any mind. Did you think he was guilty? I don't want to say who was guilty or who was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at fucking 12 o'clock at night when there ain't supposed to be no kids working and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. So my principles wouldn't let me go down there and sit in court. That's just the way I am. If somebody in my family was guilty of something, I wouldn't sit there for them in a courtroom and say, you've got my support. Fuck that. The most it would be is, hey, you go work that out. (laughs) I still love you. I'm still your friend. I kind of agree with Eddie Murphy on this. So then the interviewer asked him if John Landis was grateful. He came in demanding lots of money. Paramount was saying, hey, come on, Eddie, we're getting fucked here. But I made him pay them. I made them pay his money. I mean, you have to remember, Eddie Murphy is like the biggest star in the world at this time. They bent over backward. But after he got the job, he brought along an attitude. He came in with this. I'm a director shit. (laughs) I was thinking, wait a second. I fucking hired you. And now you're running around going, you have to remember, I'm the boss. I'm the director. One of his favorite things was to tell me when I worked with Michael Jackson, everyone was afraid of Michael, but I'm the only one who would tell Michael, fuck you. And I'm not afraid to tell you, fuck you. John Landis said that. Yes. Oh my God. And sure enough, he was telling me, fuck you, Eddie. Everybody at Paramount is afraid on you. Now, Playboy said, did you ever confront him? Murphy. I kind of ignored it, but every day I was kind of... a new I told Michael fuck you story. Then one day I had these two writers who did the screenplay for Coming America with me. They were writing a TV show called What's Alan Watching that my company was producing. They were at our location in New York and Landis was asking him, why are you guys here? They said, we're working on something with Eddie. He said strongly, the production's not picking that up. And then I said, no, we're working through Eddie's company. Right now we're waiting for the deal to go through. And Landis said, so you're not being paid yet? That company should just be paying you. Don't come to New York unless you're you're going to be paid. The whole crew was standing around, extras and actors, and Landis was screaming, don't be afraid to ask Eddie Murphy for his money. You go up and ask for your fucking money. I walked and said... I walked in and said, Eddie, your company is fucking these guys out of their money. Guys, don't be afraid to go up to Eddie and say, fuck you. He's screaming about my deal in front of all the cast and crew (laughs) at Playboy. What did you do? I playfully grabbed him by the throat, (laughs) put my arms around him, and I said to Fruity, one of my guys, what happens when people put my business on the street? And Fruity said, they get fucked up. Oh. I was kind of half joking. Landis reached down to grab my balls like he thought it was a joke, and I cut his wind off. He fell down, his face turned red, his eyes watered up like a bitch, and he ran off the set. Fucking punk. Playboy, did you go after him? Nah, he came to my trader later and made this big speech. His voice was trembling, and it all came out that he didn't think I was talented, that the only reason he did coming to America was for money. He didn't respect me, me since I hadn't gone to his trial and all this bullshit, all oh this fucked God. up shit. Called me ignorant, called me an asshole. How did you take it? I'm sitting there shattered. I'm thinking, this fucking guy, I bent over fucking backwards to get this guy a job. He probably won't even acknowledge what had happened. He didn't realize that his fucking career was washed up. So I told him, the next time you fuck around with me, I'm going to whip your ass. His Hollywood shit came out then. What do you mean whip my ass? That's not an ordeal. So I said, (laughs) you're going to have to give me either some fear or some respect. I want one of them because this is my shit and you're working here. If the only way you can fear me is knowing that the next time you fuck up, you're going to get your ass whipped, then fine. But Landis was fucked up. Is that a net or a true gross ass whipping I'm going to get? What kind of ass whipping is it, playboy? Would you have whipped his ass? If he had fucked up again, I would have beat the shit out of him. <laughs> Murphy follows up on that saying that he was going, if he was going to be charged with assault, he'd get his money's worth. If it had come to that, me whipping his ass, there wouldn't have been some headline like Eddie Murphy punches John Landis in the face. I'd have beat the shit out of him, put him in the fucking hospital, almost killed him. Then the headline read, Eddie being sued for assault. I'd have said humbly, yeah, I did give him a horrible ass whipping. He deserves some kind of compensation because I did beat the shit out of him. <laughs> Wow. So did he do this interview like in the 80s, like right around the time? Yeah. So he's still a big star and he just like fucking lays into this John Landis. This is hilarious. Isn't that hilarious? I was dying. I was like, this is the Eddie Murphy I miss. Like (laughs) before he became family friendly. Like, you know what I mean? Like you forget that he was fucking hilarious. Right. um, Back in the day. I mean, he's still funny, but like, I just don't like his movies anymore. Well, he's like, he's does like family movies now yeah he's not like the edgy but young i just comic. really relate to the idea of beating the shit out, out of someone and being like here's your million dollar settlement it was worth it <laughs> that's that's what i'm ending that little story on uh because i think it's pretty funny it's great um 
so let's get into his disgusting child a bit. <laughs> now, Max Landis is born after this Twilight Zone thing. He's born in 1985 in Beverly Hills. Uh, his mom is Deborah Landis. She's just basically a costume designer and a historian, so she's kind of in the business as well. He goes to Beverly Hills High School. I mean, he's just the rich kid upbringing. He actually ends up at some point going to a therapeutic boarding school in Connecticut, which I looked up. And that's basically um, when you have behavioral problems. It's the type of school you go to for that. I was like, therapeutic boarding school? I know all about them. I know all about them. I did not know. I was like, that sounds like a euphemism for something when you're bad. And when you're a problem child, you go. Exactly. So he has problems from a young age. Uh, Now, of course, let's set the record straight. Not all kids who have... (laughs) behavioral problems end right. up. But this isn't something that just happened when he became this successful. This is a pattern. Like he We're was a rich kid who had those kind of entitlement issues, probably, et cetera, from a very young age. We're establishing a pattern here. Yes. I'm sure you're fine if you went to those kind of things. You can be a lot of, not everyone is a sociopath who does that for sure. This guy is. <laughs> <laughs> so he, you know, he wants to go into the industry as well. Uh, he starts appearing in some of his dad's lesser films that start happening you know, in the late 90s, uh, including the Blues Brother one that we mentioned, to Blues Brothers 2000. He starts writing at um, a young age as well, including a collaboration with his father as one of his uh, first um, things that he does. I mean, the funny thing to me about Max Landis is like, even someone whose dad has a washed up career still had to still manage to have all these connections yeah. and nepotism work in his favor. Right? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy. Like you kind of expect it from successful parents, but he's like this washed up guy now. And, and Max still was able to use that off as like this jumping off point. Right. Like, for whatever reason. He eventually goes to the University of Miami and he starts writing um, short films there. He comes back to LA after leaving university. I'm not sure if he graduated or just after his first year. And he goes on like a spec selling streak. Like he sells like three or four screenplays like almost immediately. And he's like what in his early 20s? Yeah. So eventually he sells a script called Chronicle. Now this is a script that gets on the blacklist. You know that list of like famous like promising unproduced screenplays. It eventually does get made and is a pretty critically acclaimed and commercially successful film. Do you know this movie? I saw it in the theaters and I got to be honest, I loved it when I saw it. What is it about exactly? It's like a found footage movie, and it's about this kid who acquires these superpowers, these like telekinetic superpowers. It's wild. It's with uh-huh. Dane DeHaan, and I love Dane DeHaan. Okay. Um, but I definitely love I I've only seen it once. I saw it in theaters, but I remember I loved it when I saw it. Okay. Well, I mean, according to what I It was a critical read, success. It's, like, it's a, it's a, you know, he did... A good job. <laughs> so he goes on to like write some other. Then he's kind of like Hollywood's little wonder boy. Like yes, you know what I mean. I remember that era. Yeah. So he he next does um, a script for a film that's based on Frankenstein called Victor Frankenstein, which I think was a piece of shit. Right. I have a vague memory of like what like. I think they tried to do a twist on the classic tale. Let's just say Max Landis is like a one-hit wonder. Okay. So I'll say it. <laughs> okay. Uh, in 2011 and 2012, he is listed on Forbes magazine's 30 under 30, like for people in the entertainment industry. So despite that flop, like he still was considered like an up-and-coming, like right. one-to-watch type person. In 2016, he um, starts production on um, his script for Bright, which was a Netflix movie that came out. And I, I didn't see it, but I do remember people dunking on it on oh, Twitter. Oh, I watched it. <laughs> and it was just as bad as everyone said it was. Is that was. with Will Smith? Yes. And like, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not the type of movie I will typically watch, but it was a pretty successful movie for Netflix, despite it all. Maybe I it was think a lot everyone of, like hate-watched it. I think it. it was like a hate-watch success. So now as early as 2013, Max... It's like, obviously you get famous. There's only so much you can hide for so long, right? Yeah. So he starts um, doing interviews and little things start seeping out. Probably one of the biggest ones is um, in an interview he did with Jezebel. So in this 2013 interview uh, with sexologist Shelby Sells, he makes a lot of comments about women such as, the most fucked up thing was that I cheated on a girl who I also gave a crippling social anxiety to, self-loathing, body dysmorphia, eating disorders like he's kind of bragging about this bad behavior he did and he's 
I mean, people went after him when he, right. obviously. Also, to do that kind of thing with Jezebel is like an insane, like extra insane because it's balls. like a feminist like uh, publication. So people are like, this guy's twisted. He's gross. This is a demented thing to say. Like, what the fuck? Whatever. That happens. So things start leaking out. I think rumors started happening. Like, I would always hear about Max Landis kind of things. I've heard about him for years. Yeah. So in 2017, right after the Harvey Weinstein story breaks, so this is like the height of like when Me Too is really starting uh, and all these accusations are coming out. A number of people who worked in the industry uh, started writing about Landis on social media. Now, these posts ranged from like subtweets. I I remember all these subtweets. Yeah. So in response to the Netflix Netflix movie Bright was was coming out right about this time. Yep. Like that's when people really started saying things. Um, one of them was an actress named Anna Akana, and she responded to Netflix's tweet about the movie written by a psychopath who sexually abused and assaults women, right? Oh, cool. Another tweet is by Ali Gertz, who is a musician and writer. She tweeted, I can't imagine who is more scared in a post-Weinstein world than a famous director's son. Now, I remember all of these tweets, I do by too. the way. Yeah. Um, another woman, uh, her name is Zoe Quinn. You might know her from the Gamergate. I do. Yeah, she's like pretty much was the sort of epicenter of that whole fucking thing, which I still don't really know what it was, but it sounds horrible. Uh, she tweeted, sometimes men who commit sexual assault are talented screenwriters and the work comes with baggage. Other times they're Max Landis, <laughs> which is a pretty good slam. Yeah. Uh, so I remember this period and everything was like, Accusations were definitely being more forthright, but I would say it was still kind of like subtly being done. It, like it was also at that point felt like it was more like an open secret among people like connected to the industry. Right, right. So, but um, Anna Akana, who was the ex girlfriend, she really went all out at some point and said basically accused him really like openly. Like yeah. after the little Netflix like you know, whatever the tweet tweet. Um, and then she's continued to speak publicly about Landis. Now there is like a big daily beast article that came out in mid June. Yes. So a lot of the information I'm taking from there, but the article is really long. Yeah. So you should read the whole thing. Cause I'm not going to touch on everything. I'm just going to go over some of the main points that are talked about in it. After she does this initial um, thing where she came out with him in 2017, she kind of always continued speaking about it, and she really goes all out in this Daily Beast article. She said she first started hearing terrible things about Max when they were still friends years ago. Then she went public, and more and more people kept coming forward to her at that point, which I think is really typical. Mm-hmm. Like when a woman finally breaks her silence, other people are feel safer to come forward. She says that she estimates that like um, less than a dozen or maybe 10 or so women came with firsthand allegations of sexual misconduct to her. And then there was like numerous, too many to count secondhand allegations of people who had seen this kind of behavior directed at women by Max Landis. So she said at this point, there's too many voices to ignore. And I felt the need to be vocal because Max is intimidating and he's scary. And I've seen being in um, that friend group one of the more frustrating things is that he would lord his power and his money over people and intimidate them into friendship or into forgiveness. Now, some of the more serious charges in this Daily Beast um, article come from an ex that is named Julie, and I think that's an anonymous um, name, like it's not her real name. And she, uh, I mean, she she basically, I think, is the one who says like the most criminal allegations against him, that she he raped her uh, several times and that... She didn't even really realize it at the time that she was being raped, which I think is probably typical when you're in a relationship with someone. Uh, You don't see it as rape, like even though it is. She was with that. She was with Max for two years, and it was like until I wrote this down right now to the Daily Beast, I didn't even realize the extent of the abuse I went through. Um, She goes on to say, even up until the end of last year, I told Max that after everything, I still believed he was a good person and that he was trying. In short, the reason I let him back into my life was because of the um, other relationships he was having with smart, nurturing, empathetic women. And I think that's also a very manipulative thing. Uh, Abusive men will, can have these cover relationships with women who are also having the wool being pulled over their eyes by these manipulative tactics. So in her mind, she's like, oh, he must be changing. Right. Because why would these women be with him? Why would they vouch for him? And it's also sort of 
self-hating because it's like I couldn't he didn't do it with me but obviously if he's with these women he must be changed you know what I mean it's like it's sort of using their own lack of self-esteem to make them believe that they have changed because they're with these better women like do you know what I mean like it's all fucked up Um, and that's what she kind of says too now one of the more interesting details to me about the whole creepy story is the circle of friends that Max sort of became the leader of at some point, he decides that he's going to call this group of people the Color Society. Now, I want to point out that he insists that the color the color is spelled the English way with the U inside of it. Come on, dude. Which is irritating because it's like, how many times was it ever even written? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Like, but that just says something about him to me, like that he had to have it spelled that way. But this group really was his draw. Like that's how he got people in. It was like, you get in my group. If you're new to, he'd find these people who were new to Los Angeles. So they get into this group and, and Julie says, Max's whole entire MO was he has a special friend group. It's very exclusive and you're lucky to be a part of it. He introduced me to almost every single one of my current friends. And I'm sure it was very alluring to be friends with some guy who has like all these connections and you want to break into the industry. Right. But I feel like even in a non-Hollywood version, Guys do that where they put you in this group, they isolate you from all your other friends, right. and you're only friends with people they know at some point. Look, we know yeah. someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she goes on to say, Max was one of the first people I met when I moved to Los Angeles. He had this really cool group. Oh, another woman said this. He had a really cool group of people that he would get together for ridiculous activities, um, 100-person Nerf battles and elaborate theme parties, which he would spend $50,000 on. What is he, the guy from Blank Check? <laughs> I know. He's like Logan Paul or something, like that YouTube guy. <laughs> like, um, I guess I just am so... I don't really consider myself antisocial, but when I hear things like this, it's like, I'm not leaving my house to go to a Nerf battle. <laughs> like, I don't care if I was 12. I was still not into that. <laughs> like, I was never into something like that. So... And, you know, these are people coming from small towns, too. Right. It's just like using all of this kind of stuff to his benefit. Now, multiple ex-members of the Color Society definitely compare the group's dynamic to a cult. And, I mean, duh. Anyone who follows cults, we all know this sounds like a fucking cult. Um, Another woman whose name is Samantha. It's an alias, obviously. I think he really does operate sort of as a cult leader, um, here is someone with a lot of resources and power and glamour, and he's surrounding himself with people, basically kids who just moved to LA from who knows where, who don't have a network. He swoops in and like a predator, he knows how to hook a person. So multiple women who dated Landis described similar experiences of being relentlessly pursued and eventually drugged into his or like dragged, sorry, not drugged, dragged into his orbit. Um, my initial impression of him was that he was trouble. He just sort of wears you down. He's that persistent. He says something shiny and want, he sees something shiny and wants it. He's like, I have to have that. He would systemically try to have sex with all the women I knew. We're not people to him. Uh, And that's like something that you see overwhelmingly in this article. It's like this relentless, like he's not taking no for an answer until they just feel like they have no choice or whatever. Um, Julie, the initial girl I spoke about who said, who had the relationship with him that lasted two years. She said she also recalled being relentlessly pursued by Max. He jokingly called me a paint cat in reference to the ill-fated feline who tries to escape the clutches of Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. I mean, we all know that that's the rapiest cartoon. Yeah. So to, to like even compare yourself to that is disgusting, right? Totally. So, I mean, there's also an element to him that is very... Um, caring in quotes, like showering people with gifts and affection and, and all of that kind of stuff yeah. to kind of get them on board as well. And, or even when they're, he's losing them, it's like to build them back up yeah. to be his little follower. And that's a classic tactic. Now, there's numerous things that Julie also describes when it comes to the spectrum of abuse she dealt with in the relationship. He would do things like bring his hand up and fake that he was going to hit her. And then he would laugh until she flinched. Like if she would try not to do it, he would keep doing it until she finally got scared. Right. uh, Which is fucked up. And that's definitely something that happened to me with my dads, my abusive dads, where they would want to get you. Right. They want to get a rise out of you. So uh, he would constantly threaten to break up with her in particular or other girlfriends. He would speak about 
prospects to her and openly flirt with other women in front of her because they want to. They these guys they want to keep yeah. you. They want to make you jealous and and yeah. He would refer to and her desperate her as his ex girlfriend in front of other girls while she's there with him. In it's a, a power move. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. He could treat. He would also critique her body in front of people. He would privately tell her that she had potential to be so hot if she would work out more. I mean, just fucking disgusting kind of stuff. Um, she also claimed that he would show her um, humiliation porn and would constantly be testing her boundaries sexual, sex, sexually until things became murkier and murkier and she didn't really know like what she wanted. You know what I mean? Right. And there was just like, she, there was no boundaries and she didn't know how to say no or get out of it. Um, she thinks that he kind of viewed sex as the only way to receive love and connect, which I think is typical of sociopaths. Like they don't know how to connect or love. Everything is just an object to them. Right. Like, so um, he definitely did sort of sadistic sexual things with her that she didn't want, like yelling at her and humiliating her until she cried and then having sex with her while she's crying. I mean, right. just fucking Awful. disgusting. But he, you know, continued to have this group of friends. And I think that makes these women feel even more isolated when they see him out in this friend group and all of their friends still love him and they're dealing with this person, um, whatever. Another thing he would do is hold an annual Burning Max trip to Big Bear or Idlewild. That is like so, just like the ego. It's not Burning Man, it's Burning Max. And it's just like this constant like like megalomaniac, like controlling juvenile, yet everything is very juvenile still. And like... You just know this fucking kind of guy, but usually yeah. they don't have this much money and power right. to kind of do this kind of shit. I mean, I read the Daily Beast article when it came out, and it's definitely a hard read, especially if you've been in an abusive relationship before, but it is an essential read in terms of understanding understanding certain dynamics that happen and uh, behaviors that occur in these abusive relationships. It's and abusive friendships as well. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of his friends also felt abused in this situation. Right. Because you you know, you can abuse people that are just your platonic friends. Well, I think also like realizing that you provided cover, like when do you know what I'm saying? Like those women who made her think, oh, he must be changing. That's like a devastating thing to hear because it's like, oh, he wasn't changing. Right. But because of how she saw me, she thought it gave him a cover. Right. And obviously they're not to blame for that. No. But it's like hard to hear right. that your your friendship provided a cover for a monster. Right. Now this other article I read, which will be the last thing I talk about, is um, from Slate. And this came out after the Daily Beast piece, but it had some interesting um, uh, sort of points to make that I wanted to go over a bit before we end. And that was just the idea of how Max's extreme openness about his shortcomings and the fact that he was a monster was another way that he manipulated. Like if he's walking around always loudly proclaiming, like, I'm difficult, I'm a monster. I have issues. Yeah, it it sort of becomes charming and gives this illusion that they're recognizing that they're aware. They're They're self aware. They're self aware and that they're doing something about it. Right. But they really don't (laughs) see it. Like they don't really see it. And and this article mentions that it's like it's a very like Louis C.K. also kind of did that. Like I'm telling you on night on stage every night that I'm jerking off in front of women, or like doing it in a different version. Obviously, he's not right. telling the truth, but it's like in his mind, it's like why are you guys surprised? I've always told you <laughs> I'm a piece of shit. Like right, it, but it's like what's the cover here? You you said you're a piece of shit, like and that gets you off. Like no, that's not how it works. So a lot of his friends just talk about how. Like when, when you're dealing with someone like that, like you, there's like at some point you're like, oh, let's all love and accept him. And then there's an added element with him because he would have all of these group chats with all of the people in the color society where he would character assassinate people uh, and no one wanted to be the next victim. Right. So there's that element too yeah. where they would see what happens if you get on his bad side and they would be like, well, I don't want to be the next person to piss him off and be in the the, the target of the group chat. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm not saying, you know, that's good or bad because I'm sure people were like, what do I do? Right. It's an awkward thing when you're in that kind of position. Yeah, I just think this article in Slate is really interesting and it really goes into a lot of um, 
that thing. They have something they were talking about called the missing stair theory. So there's two articles. There's well, the- this is the Daily Beast is the one that really goes through with all the women and talks right. to all of the women who are making the accusations against him. And then what's the him. Slate article? The Slate article is more talking about his modus operandi. Okay, um, I'll put links to it on Facebook. Yeah. Um, for people, but I think it's one of the top ones that come up if you search his name right yeah. now. Um, so the missing stare theory tries to explain toxic people who everyone finds a way to work around rather than confront. Um, and they kind of just Landis and his kin can be explained by a corollary. The squeaky wait, stare. Wait, say that again. Landis and his kin can be explained by a corollary. The squeaky stare that calls constant attention to its own defect and gets loved instead of shunned in return. Like they're basically saying because he always calls attention, like I'm the squeaky stare, like, that he gets this attention and gets loved for his defect. Like no one that's that big of a monster would actually call themselves out for having defects. Right. Like you think of like a sociopath like Ted Bundy who hides who they are or like that's the sort of they trope think that, that you often see. He, he's able to like mask his true monstrosity by being like, see, I have self-awareness. Like he feigns self-awareness. Right. And he fits this pattern that everyone recognizes according to this article, like the public jerk, the rich guy, spoiled brat. So it's like, you're kind of familiar with it, which makes you feel like you can control it or something like, do you know what I mean? Or you're prepared for it. Yeah. Or that it's like not a real thing in a way, or it's just like, oh, and in the end of the movie, the rich guy always gets his lesson and you know, he comes around or whatever. Yeah. Like there's always something. So anyways, I, I mean, it's like a lot of psychology that I'm not really great talking about, but I do think the article is interesting. It is in um, Slate and it's called Max Landis told everyone he was awful. That made that made his alleged abuse harder to spot. And then it's just like an interesting little yeah. um, companion piece to the Daily Beast one. So there's not like any trial news or anything that has happened with him after these allegations, but he has been dropped by his management company. Yeah. And his agents, right now writers have all fired their agents, but they said they won't be taking him back, I guess, when that kind of stuff is settled. Yeah. So that is the story of John and Max Landis. (laughs) Quite a lot of entitlement for one show. Yeah. Uh, That's a lot. But yeah. So Wow. That's that. Well, I'll be very, I'm very like interested to see where it goes from here with him. If he will face the consequences. If he ever faces consequences either legally or just like career wise, like if he will continue right. to work again. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, um, I hope not. Yeah. We'll see. But we'll definitely keep you posted yeah, on absolutely. what happens with him. Um, we'll post some pictures on our Instagram so you can follow us there. You can go to our Facebook group, um, Hollywood Crime Scene Friends, and join. And actually, we just realized that our 100th episode is coming up, as well as our two-year anniversary. It's going to be on the same day. So we will join our Facebook group, because I will be posting a poll. We're going to pick like five or six or whatever show topics that have been suggested to us, like popular requests. And we will do... That request, whichever one wins for our 100th episode. So yeah. if you're interested in uh, voting in that poll, right. then go to the Facebook group and join. Um, if not, I guess you could tweet tweet at us and we'll tally your vote. <laughs> <laughs> no, join the Facebook Just group. Just join the Facebook group. Yeah. Um, okay. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.